Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We uh, repeated our uh, our uh, determination to work together uh, on around the shared values of pluralism and respect, uh, while at the same time having uh, a zero tolerance for violent extremism or terrorism. Well, there's the Prime Minister of Canada with one of his template speeches after an unusual week in India when the Prime Minister of this country visits an important allied nation, a significant trading partner, and the country of ancestral home for many Canadians. It would be expected that the Prime Minister would behave in a manner which would not be reviewed with less than total enthusiasm in the nation he's visiting and not be ridiculed here at home. I'm going to have more to say about that shortly. We're joined on the program by Shivam Vij. He's an Indian journalist, and he joins us from New Delhi. And uh, Shivam Vij wrote the Washington Post column, Why India is Being Really Rude to Justin Trudeau. He's uh, one of India's foremost journalists. Shivam, thank you very much for the time. I know it's very late for you. Was there, uh, was there any anticipation of Trudeau arriving in India? Was there any level of, of looking forward to the, to the visit of the Prime Minister of Canada? Well, yes, Roy, there was this sense that uh, it would be a good trip, you know, last uh, 50 years. A lot of world leaders have been coming and going. And Trudeau, as you know, was um, a kind of charming, handsome leader, a young liberal uh, prime minister. So we all thought it would be a great visit, and we were kind of taken by surprise at the last-minute uh, Indian snub. But it was clear the moment... Prime Minister Trudeau landed at Delhi airport and was not received by Prime Minister Modi, who goes out of the way to receive all world leaders and hug them at the airport. That did happen with Trudeau, and we knew instantly something is wrong. You wrote uh, the column that initially appeared in the Washington Post, and that was um, talked about why the Indian government was, quote, being really rude, end quote, to Justin Trudeau. What was the issue? Well, the issue, as we learned here, was that the Indian government had been upset with the Trudeau government for two years now for being seen as being close to the Sikh separatists, the Khalistani separatists in Canada, people who want the Indian Punjab state to be separated from India, as it were, uh, for which there has been a violent terrorist movement in the past. Um, but also that at the last moment, I gather, the Indian government wanted Trudeau to come and say that he supports India's unity and integrity, but the Canadian side wanted to qualify that by saying that they also support freedom of speech and expression, so they cannot prevent anyone from saying anything in Canada. And the Indian government did not want any such qualification. Thereafter, most details came out, Roy, that the Indian government actually was not very keen on Trudeau visiting at all. Uh, and not certainly not for eight days, certainly not going around India like this, but it was the Canadian government which insisted on such a long, elaborate trip. You know, Mr. Trudeau has a habit of demanding when he's overseas. He has a habit of demanding of his 
hosts that they that they uh, adhere to specifics that he wants adhered to instead of simply being a a good guest. But I heard you say that the Indian government didn't really want Mr. Trudeau in India, and particularly not for such a long period of time. Uh, yes, boy, because uh, the whole Khalistan Sikh separatism issue has been there. It's been very clear uh, that the Trudeau trip was more about his domestic audience, his domestic politics, his domestic positioning in Canada than really about India-Canada relationships. So that is why the Indian government, who, uh, you know, the Indian government was very worried and anxious, in fact, about uh, how this trip would play out, what would Trudeau say. He's coming with four of his six ministers who've been to India in the past. There was no need to bring them again. So the whole Khalistan issue is such a hypersensitive issue in India that actually the Indian side I think, was very nervous about any negative fallout of the trip. And there was one negative fallout, if you remember, that one convicted attempted murderer of an Indian minister, uh, Mr. Atwal, was given a visa by the Indians and invited to a Canadian function. Mm-hmm. So something bad did happen, something did go wrong. How, uh, how disturbing is that particular incident that you have a convicted terrorist who's somehow part of the entourage of the, of the, of the Trudeau group and uh, finds himself on a list for an invitation for a major event, and then is removed, but nevertheless has his photograph taken with the prime minister's wife. How is that? What's the long-term uh, effect of that? You know, I mean, that incident. I mean, by the way, Mr. Atwal has claimed that he was not part of the entourage; that he came separately. However, he was invited to an event at the Canadian High Commission in Delhi. Um, the, that incident basically confirmed everything the Indian side was saying. Because until then, the Canadians could say that the Indians are overreacting to the Khalistan issue. But that incident totally confirmed what the Indian side had been saying. The, the, the Canadian government is basically in bed with the Khalistanis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also for us, it raised a similar issue on how did he get visa. So, you know, there are basically for us, it's a national security concern. Right. Well, when uh, Mr. Atwal was there, um, and and he, according to the Prime Minister, was somehow invited or connected to the MP, the Member of Parliament, uh, where Mr. Atwal lives, that to me makes him at least a hanger-on in the entourage, and when they give him an invitation or present him with an official invitation, that is also an issue of concern. Shivam, what about Mr. Trudeau's outfits while he was in India? How much attention did that get? Oh, they were ridiculous. I mean, as um, you know, one Indian journalist wrote on Twitter, Mr. Trudeau went from hot to not in four days. He was being too Indian, even for Indians. We do not dress like that all the time. He was uh, dressed not even for a Bollywood film, but an over-the-top Bollywood film. He was dressed as if he was attending an Indian wedding that goes on for a week. Uh, Particularly the dress he was wearing when he was meeting Bollywood stars, you know, it was so gaudy, I wouldn't wear it even for my own wedding. Um, so his dress was, his dressing was atrocious. But, um, you know, maybe that's not his fault. That's his advisors. Maybe that is the, the dressing sense of the particular communities he's targeting in Canada. Um, so I don't really know. I mean, the, the, the over-the-top dressing further gave the impression the trip is not about India. It's about appealing to the domestic constituency in Canada. Yeah, that's the feeling, and, uh, and and I can assure you that Mr. Trudeau is known for unusual wardrobe, at least from time to time. Has he, uh, one more question for you, has he in some way, uh, I won't say harmed the relationship between India and Canada, but has he, has he, has he affected it negatively with this visit? Oh, absolutely, because until now, the uh, India and Canada diplomats were, uh, you know, quietly exchanging notes about the Indian concern on Khalistan, and the Canadian side was saying, hey, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, and the Indian side was saying, it's not freedom of speech, it's the Canadian government that is giving them a free pass. But that dispute now has come out in the open. Now, people in India are saying the Canadian government is doing something that's against India. And I think that's really bad PR for the Canadian government in India. And it seems that Mr. Trudeau doesn't care. He cares more about his domestic vote bank. 
Now, you have to understand that the Khalistan movement in India has a lot of terrorism and violence and human rights violations by Indian security forces. There was a lot of mess. Went on from the 1980s to 1995. We lost one prime minister to it, Indira Gandhi. Um, now, <coughs> because of that, India-Canada relations were pretty bad for uh, the 1980s and the 1990s. Only recently did they improve, particularly the time of Prime Minister Harper. That's how Prime Minister Modi was able to visit Canada. Um, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh before that visited Canada. But now we've come to a pass where India-Canada relations have also again hit the Khalistan roadblock. And I think the Canadian government should worry about that. Shivan, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Very late for you in New Delhi and, uh, and, and very thoughtful of you to spend the time with us. All the very best to you. Thank you, Roy. Shivam Vij, uh, journalist in New Delhi in India, not mincing his words at all. Uh, did Trudeau harm the relationships or negatively affect the relationship between India and Canada with his visit and the way that it, that it went for eight days? Absolutely, he said. Absolutely. Indian government doesn't feel he was there to create a better relationship with India. He was there for domestic reasons. In other words, getting votes from the Indian diaspora. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm just looking at some headlines over the last uh, couple of weeks that had to do with the conflict between Alberta and British Columbia. And uh, in sequence, Alberta shrugs off B.C. legal challenge on wine ban, says much more at stake. And then there's another one. Alberta and B.C. agree to a truce in pipeline dispute. Oh, no, out of sequence. Alberta government says B.C. breaking rules of confederation in full-page newspaper ad. I thought there was going to be a real good snowball lobbing across the Rockies fight between Alberta and British Columbia. A very important issue. It's the pipeline issue. And it's getting the oil and the bitumen out of Alberta and getting it to the uh, port in B.C. and getting it sold internationally because selling the stuff to the United States, it's sold at discount and it doesn't help Alberta, it doesn't help the rest of Canada. So you had Alberta and British Columbia at each other's throats and the question now is did both the Alberta and the British Columbia premiers blink at the same time because the wine's flowing back from British Columbia into Alberta and the premier of British Columbia has said he'll go to the courts and let them decide about whether or not they can do what they want to do with Northern Gateway, which upset Alberta. So I'm going to turn things over for comment to uh, two fellow broadcasters, two colleagues, chorus colleagues in, uh, in Western Canada, Ryan Jesperson of the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Ched in Edmonton. Ryan was with us the first time we talked about this. Welcome back, my friend. It's great to be back, Roy. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, John Daly, on the beat again, host on CKNW Radio in Vancouver. Uh, is it okay to say veteran broadcaster? That's what they say about oh, me. Oh, sure. Just say he's an old guy. They always say okay. to veteran broadcaster. Hey, listen, Roy, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's great and to speak with, with you, John. So, uh, Ryan, let me start with you. Who blinked? Did uh, Rachel Notley blink? Did John Horgan blink? Did nobody blink? Was it just a matter of practicality? Well, you know, uh, Roy, anybody that's, that's a, a, as a youth undergone a staring contest knows that you never want to be the one that blinks first. It's perceived as a negative. But at the same time, as, as youngsters, we're taught that it's okay to walk away from a fight that doesn't make sense. So, mm-hmm. so maybe we give credit to both parties here, but I think it's safe to say that when Premier Horgan... Uh, told British Columbians that they were going to take this to the courts and let the courts decide whether or not they had a case. That's something Premier Rachel Notley had been calling for. That's something she was comfortable for. And it prompted her to lift a wine ban that I'm sure she didn't want in the first place. Uh, John, how do you assess things from uh, from the snow belt? Well, a lot of people here, yeah, it is snowing like anything, or at least it has been. And the, the mountains are beautiful today here in Vancouver and British Columbia. It looks fantastic. But, uh, okay, uh, a lot of people think that Horgan linked, Premier Horgan linked. I don't myself. I think it's, it's just common sense. This thing had to go to court. 
uh, you know, it, it, it was clearly a reference case. It's kind of like uh, like what they would say in the states. It's a states' rights versus a federal rights case. So, you know, does does BC have the right to regulate uh, bitumen coming out of the end of a pipeline into uh, Burrard Inlet, uh, going onto boats, uh, to the extent that basically it's a ban? You know, after the National Energy Board, which is no longer, but it was, and, and permitted it, said it's okay. You know, I mean, who's got the power here? Is it Ottawa? Is it is it BC? And frankly, it needs to be addressed in a logical, legal, thoughtful, careful, uh, appropriate manner, and not with some sort of backstabbing, uh, you know, snarky kind of uh, low-level uh, wine bans and trade bans and this kind of thing. I remember there was going to be another lawsuit uh, from BC uh, against Alberta, basically saying, look, we've we've got an interprovincial trade agreement and you're violating it. And you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your knuckles wrapped for that. So, I mean, okay, let's just, let's just let cooler heads prevail. Frankly, I think uh, BC NDP uh, um, Attorney General David Eby uh, may have given some advice for it. You know, what's interesting, the emails that I see from uh, ordinary Joes and Janes and Roys is that uh, Alberta ran an ad that worried that British Columbia and Alberta economies may suffer seriously uh, because of this dispute and that it would harm the national economy. And I would add to that by drilling and refining or not refining and moving oil and gas through pipelines to wind up in energy-dependent nations the national economy of Canada would experience a real growth, and mm-hmm. we wouldn't face more billions of dollars of deficit spending, which Ottawa will, will no doubt announce on Tuesday in the yeah. federal budget. Why aren't we using what we have that other nations need to our national benefit? Well, and Roy, if you if you if you bring that message to the province of Alberta, you'll be met with a chorus uh, of people that agree with you. I mean, that's been the message out of Alberta, uh, not for months, but for years and, and for decades. And and we recognize uh, two things here as Albertans. Number one, this pipeline project, this Trans Mountain expansion, is incredibly important uh, to the political fortunes. Of our political uh, of our provincial government right now, Premier Rachel Notley needs this pipeline to happen for two reasons. Number one, she needs to show Albertans proof of performance if she wants to get reelected, and number two, our government, Alberta's government, desperately needs to get out of a double-digit deficit situation. Albertans aren't necessarily familiar with that type of situation. Federally, everybody knows. The Trudeau government, you could say the same thing. They sure could use the resource revenue that will be coming to Ottawa with an expansion of this project. But we also know, as we pointed out uh, just a short time ago on your show, that the Prime Minister's political fortunes in the Lower Mainland can't be taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm not surprised to see Ottawa staying absolutely out of this, including uh, a failure to even commit to join British Columbia in seeing if the courts have jurisdiction here. Ottawa didn't want to indicate, I don't think even for a second, that it might not have veto power or the green light power on this one. We know that they do. And I think everybody believes that, uh, as is the case in in the democratic and and civilized society, you put this in front of the judiciary, you take it to court, you let them sort it out, and let's move forward without delay. That's the key point, though. How long will this be delayed? And what impact will it have on Kinder Morgan's investment? Uh, John, what about the uh, Mr. Trudeau getting back into the game or being yanked into the game where the federal well, government will, is going to have a role to play? He, of course, the, the game, whether or not they were, uh, you know, for a reference on this thing. John, we've got a problem with your, we have a problem with your phone. Uh, it's a techno okay. problem. It's the warble, the techno warble. Oh, it happened. Let me see if we can, maybe we can get it a little better. We'll work with John on that. uh, Ryan, there's also the proposed Eagle Spirit Pipeline, $16 billion. It's a project on First Nations land, which those First Nations are approving of. And the challenge for the Eagle Spirit Pipeline is the tanker ban, Trudeau announced for the B.C. coast, of course. And we had Calvin Helene on the program a few weeks ago, and they're ready to go full bore uh, in court or wherever they have to in order to get that pipeline built. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is what makes this particularly interesting, Roy, is we understand that this is not necessarily the, a discussion of 
of Alberta versus British Columbia. There are many British Columbians uh, to whom this pipeline project, these pipeline projects, including Eagle Spirit, like you're referencing, uh, it's important to them as well. Indigenous communities, uh, residents of B.C.'s interior and B.C.'s northern regions, uh, to whom this would mean uh, uh, many months, if not years of work, and obviously huge uh, infrastructure investment and investment into their communities. That's why when we bring this back to the wine ban, it's very interesting, too. Many of, uh, of, of if you look at B.C. by region, many of the, the entrepreneurs and the winemakers that were, you know, I- impacted by this ban, though I would argue the impact was minimal considering the relatively short time frame. Many of them, many of these winemakers, many of the residents of the interior are actually supportive of this pipeline expansion. And that's why I think many people are, are happy to see it out of the headlines, out of the political sphere, and getting into the courts. And uh, John, how does this play out eventually and finally? How do you think? Well, I think, you know, uh, as Ryan says, you know, we're at, we're at 48 percent uh, support for BC's position in this whole thing on the Angus Reid poll. It's it, and and remember, uh, Horgan's got a uh, mar- razor thin uh, majority with his uh, you know with his government here, only supported by the Green Party. If he, the Green Party steps away from him, he's in trouble big time. So the government could collapse. So uh, I think everybody's pleased to see it go to the BC, uh, or sorry, the Canadian uh, Supreme Court. It's got to go there. And frankly, I think they'll deal with it PDQ. I don't think they're going to sit on their hands on this puppy. They're going to get moving on it. They better. And, and that'll be fine. Yeah. We need an answer. Yeah, we do. Point blank. All of us. All of us, B.C. and Alberta, because you're both directly involved, but the rest yeah. of us are also involved because our economies are largely and significantly dependent on what happens with our natural resources. And yeah. the, we're, we're definitely resource dependent. And, uh, yeah. you know, to remember, B.C. was always a resource. Uh, I mean, it's changed now, but, I mean, we, we depended on mining. We depended on uh, timber. Uh, and export. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we have uh, the Albertans trying to export their uh, bitumen uh, oil, which uh, is much more valuable in foreign markets than it is pumping into the states. And, you know, they've got a reasonable case. They've gone through all of the hoops. They've got the approval. But you got to remember, B.C. is the bastion of environmentalists. And, you know, the protests are continuing. Like even today, there'll be a protest against the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Every day, virtually, there's a protest against this thing. So Horgan's aware of that, and I think he's real glad to see this go to the uh, Supreme Court in Ottawa. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for the time. Ryan, great speaking with you again. John, good touching base with you, and I'm sure we'll be back at it again. Thanks, brother. Thanks, guys. Ryan Jesperson and John Daly from 630Chad and 980CKNW, respectively. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900CHML. My daughter has no voice. She was murdered last week, and she was taken from us. Shot nine times on the third floor. There isn't anybody whose heart doesn't break when you hear the father talk about losing his daughter in that manner. There isn't anyone whose heart does not break. And that includes people who own firearms legally. People who own firearms legally because they're hunters, collectors, sports shooters. In the United States, they're allowed to own firearms to protect themselves. In Canada, if a woman has pepper spray or tear gas and uses it to protect herself, she can be criminally charged. In the United States, a woman can use a firearm to protect herself without worries about being criminally charged. But your heart breaks for the parents. Your heart breaks over the the losses of children and insane school shootings such as the one in Florida by a young man who clearly, I would suspect, will be proven to be insane. But I've heard a lot of negative things said about people who own firearms. Just de facto, just off the top of your head, just they must be, and then comes the accusation. And I find that uh, just to be totally unfair. 
But I want to speak with uh, with two firearms owners, two members of the National Rifle Association, the NRA in the United States. They're both mums. Megan is in Virginia and Holly is in Connecticut. They join us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Megan. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Well, thanks. And Holly, good to speak with you. Hi, Roy. How are you? I'm well. Uh, Megan, what's your what's your reaction as a mother and a gun owner to what happened in Florida? Uh, and you know that there's a lot being said that gun owners are the cause of the problems. What's your response to what's what's happened in the last week? Well, I think the the majority of people's response is that it's heartbreaking to hear that this has happened. However, I firmly believe that it is not a gun issue. It is not an issue with the National Rifle Association. It is an issue of sick individuals. Holly, when it comes to the NRA, the National Rifle Association, you're a member of the NRA. Please tell tell us why. What does the NRA do for Americans? Well, I think the NRA is responsible for some of the most comprehensive training opportunities for us. Um, The NRA does a tremendous amount of work as far as um, even non-firearm training. They do um, refuse to be a victim training, which teaches people situational awareness and how to defend themselves even when they don't possess a firearm. And I think um, one of the things that the media is tremendously overlooking is the great work that the NRA does as far as training in responsible ownership and um they they do so much great work and and that is just not being recognized do you think it's necessary to protect yourself from an incident a gun incident because of the large numbers of firearms in the united states or is that beside the point i personally don't think that the number of firearms that we have in the united states are an additional risk. I think that there are other factions of society that are causing us to see violence that we haven't seen in the past, but I don't think that simply the number of firearms that we have is contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Megan, so for example, sorry, go ahead. So, for example, if you take Chicago, um, it is a city, and uh, Illinois is a state that has very strict gun control regulations, and yet there's areas and pockets of Chicago that have terrible gang violence. Mm-hmm. And those shootings that you hear that are reported on aren't from legal gun owners. They're from a criminal population. Would you both feel, I guess here's the Canadian question, would you both feel more comfortable if guns were not as readily available in in the United States? Would it Would it lower the... And would it lower the temperature? Would it lower the pressure if, if they weren't as readily available in the U.S. as they are? Um, well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how readily available these firearms are. So to give you a little bit of idea of what I go through as a firearms owner in Connecticut, um, I first had to go through not only classroom training but also put provide um, documentation that I was proficient with a firearm to even become eligible for my permit. So then once I obtained my permit, it cost about $350 in Connecticut. Every state is different um, to get your your permit. Um, At that point, once you actually go to purchase your first firearm, your background check is run, again, every time you purchase a firearm. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that we walk into Walmart or something like that and we just walk out with a firearm. That's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Every single time that we purchase a firearm in any kind of brick-and-mortar store or even at a gun show, um, that is all goes through the NIC system, and they check to see if we've had any felonies or anything that would prevent us from having a firearm with the purchase of every firearm. So that's, a national, that's national legislation in the U.S.? So it would be there is a NIC system is national correct. Now um, different different states have varying practices, but the NIC system is federal correct. Now, Holly, I you carry a, f- a concealed firearm. You have a permit to do so, correct? Yes. Um, I don't want you to tell us anything that is difficult for you to talk about. But is, is the, uh, am I correct in assuming there's a personal reason for doing this? Yes, there absolutely is. And how much more confident 
does it make you feel that you are that you have a firearm and that you can protect yourself and protect your life, perhaps protect others around you? How much more confident does it make you to go out when you go out in the morning that you have this firearm with you? I, I think there's no question. I, um, you know, I'm a single parent. Um, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I have no doubt that being in possession of my firearm has um, avoided a situation in the past. And I think that we've seen it. Um, Megan and I both know young women that are survivors. We know women who have been victims. Um, and whether or not they've had a firearm on them um, has, has been a deciding factor in, in how that turned out. Now, I spoke with Amanda Collins a few years ago, who I'm sure you both know. Uh, yep. And she had, was sexually assaulted, raped in a, in a university dorm, and it was a gun-free zone. And uh, that didn't do her any good. And she was, uh, she was raped, and she now is uh, very outspoken about carrying uh, guns and being uh, a gun for protection and the right to do so. Um, Megan, what's the best approach then to, to dealing with tragedies like the one in Florida, the Florida shooting? What's the best way to deal with that? that as a society we're trying to figure out but unfortunately when instances like this happen it gets to be a very emotional and kind of volatile response and there's extremes on both sides right Mm -hmm. so um, one of the things that I've been disappointed about is the organization moms demand action Um, I have found that looking at their website and the statistics that they put out their their methodology for how they capture them is it's skewing how media is reporting on things. So if you take, for example, um, on their website, they'll have items such as how many school shootings have happened this year. But when you look at the title of it, it's kind of mind-blowing. And then you dig a little deeper, and they have instances such as like North Broward uh, Preparatory School in Coconut Creek, Florida, on February 15th recorded that a deputy accidentally discharged his firearm, shooting himself in the leg. And they added that as a school shooting. Okay, and Holly, the same question to you: What's the approach to deal to deal with the with the school shootings, or should just you know the schools? Yes, and shootings in general, uh, like you know, that horrible incident in uh, in Las Vegas. I mean, I think that one of the primary issues that we can see um, sort of an undisputable problem with are these gun-free zones. So we have gun-free zones that have not become the exception, but more of the norm that these shootings are happening in gun-free zones. And and I think Megan's absolutely right when she says that there is so much misinformation out there that is being fed from um, the mainstream media, not only about the numbers of shootings and um, the statistics that are being used to build build these cases, but what these firearms are and are not. Um, I think if we did a better job of educating individuals about what the firearms do, what the laws currently are, um, and and honestly, I think gun-free zones are a tremendous part of the problem. Um, A lot of people don't realize that in in Colorado, the individual who um, committed the shooting in a movie theater, he drove past a movie theater that was not a gun-free zone and went to a further movie theater that was a gun-free zone. And I think we really need to look at that and say, okay, what is the commonality here? And that these are all groups of people where they can pretty much count on the fact that they will not be confronted by a gun owner um, and that they will have more time and more opportunity to do the most damage. All right. Megan, Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All the best. Megan's in Virginia. Holly is in uh, Connecticut. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It's going to be a long flight home for uh, the Prime Minister of Canada from India. Shivam Vidj, the Indian journalist who wrote the column for the Washington Post, in which he um, speculated as to why India was really rude to Justin Trudeau. I was on the show earlier, and I asked him about the clothing the Prime Minister wore, the the Indian clothing that the Prime Minister wore, here's what he had to say. Oh, they were ridiculous. I mean, as, uh, you know, one Indian journalist wrote on Twitter, Mr. Trudeau went from hot to not in four days. He was being too Indian, even for Indians. We do not dress like that all the time. He was uh, 
dressed not even for a Bollywood film, but over the top Bollywood film. He was dressed as if he was attending an Indian wedding that goes on for a week. Uh, particularly the dress he was wearing when he was meeting Bollywood stars. You know, it was so gaudy. I wouldn't wear it even for my own wedding. Um, <laughs> so his dress was his dressing was atrocious. So <laughs> there is uh, Shivam Ridge. Did he say he went from hawk to nut? In four days. All right, it's time for the beauties for Catherine Swift at Swifty. What is it? What's the rest of it? Oh, it's just at Swifty with an I E O one. Oh one. Okay. Yeah. At well, Swifty O one. Swifty is very popular on Twitter, so you gotta you gotta massage it to get one that's not already used. Oh, I know. It's hard, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It is. Here's L L Etherdale. <laughs> okay, I got a call, Roy. But anyway, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and at Michelle Simpson, former Liberal member of Parliament who knows the Prime Minister all too well, and is just sorry she wasn't in India with him. Oh, yeah. You could have been uh, dancing. <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to dress like he did. <laughs> kind, kind of. Miss, you know what the, uh, and what, uh, I don't know if you heard the interview with Shivam Vej, but what he told us as well is that the Indian government didn't really, didn't even want Mr. Trudeau there, and they certainly didn't want him for eight days, but the yeah. Canadian government insisted. I, I heard the I heard the interview, Roy, but I had already heard that from other sources prior to him saying it, that the Indian government wasn't, well, and, and we saw that. It wasn't, it wasn't a business. Yeah, trip. but on this show, Catherine, we just quote what we do. I know. Oh, sorry, Roy. Do you know there was? You know there was another small business organization I used to interview. <laughs> CFID. They said there was a half day of business out of eight days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what this was, and I mean, this is what's coming very clear to everybody paying attention is, is that it was a it was a trip. They're going to trot out all these pictures of him and his family in a pro, in Indian garb, which of course was over the top, as as we heard from many Indian people, um, uh, before the next election to appeal to the Canadian diaspora, which is largely Sikh. So, and and if if, if that's going to be the case, have a nice day. But you know what? We taxpayers shouldn't be paying for it. People are the pe- Liberal Party should be paying for it. People are not that's buying right. it. Michelle Michelle is a former Liberal member of Parliament. Yeah. As the MP who sat beside the Prime Minister when he before he was Prime Minister, in question period daily, how do you assess his performance, and what do you think was going on in his mind that m- led him to believe this was a smart thing to do and, and a proper way to do it? I, I really can't read his mind, but it's like he's gone off script. I, and I don't know who's advising him, but to have an eight-day trip and a half-day of business after, you know, the Ega con, it's like nobody's learning the lesson. Mm-hmm. Nobody's learning the I'm lesson. Concerned. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not. And some, you know, there'll be a lot of MPs that will put very well-scripted questions on the order paper to get to the bottom of exactly how much this costs taxpayers. Well, good luck with that. It's like they're flipping Canadian taxpayers the bird. And by the way, you, you heard that they got some bureaucrat, which they didn't permit media to report on who it was. Yeah to make up this story that it was an Indian uh, conspiracy yep. of certain rogue elements to, to, to undermine the Trudeau visit, and they mm-hmm. had some bureaucrat? Some can, this, that's a major gaffe. I well, mean, and, and, the fact, gaffe. and the fact that they did it in India is inexcusable. Linda, what do you, what do you make of this? Well, again, I think both Catherine and Michelle have hit the nail on the head when they said a waste of taxpayer dollars. And let's not forget, and I know we're going to discuss it, but we got a budget coming up. And we're already spending $63 billion a year on interest payments alone, Roy. Mm-hmm. Can we yeah. afford this Indian garb? I, I, you know, and why do we have to pay for it? Okay, but so we have a lot of things that we have to go through here, and we have to go through them yeah. quickly if we're going to get them all done. And we talk about the budget coming up. So let's look at that. On Tuesday of next week, the federal government is going to deliver its budget. Mr. Morneau, still hanging in as federal finance minister, will persuade us 
that multiples of billions of dollars of deficit are a good idea. Let's go to the economist first. Well, the, the government's own, uh, so, some people that are big liberal supporters are going, oh, the economy's doing great, la, la, la. Well, even the government's own data show that they're expecting growth of less than 2%, 1.5 to 1.8% uh, GDP, uh, you know, econ- economic growth over the next few years. That is weak, weak growth. And I have never in my long history of looking at federal budgets, which is never fun, but necessary evil, I have never, ever seen one predict that there's going to be a recession. But, of course, there's going to be. And nobody wants it, but it's going to happen. It always does. I think the next recession in Canada, and it'll undoubtedly be in other countries as well, but it is going to be a fiasco because these guys are spending like mad when things are good. So what happens when things go bad? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a... It's a Flirting with disaster. It starts with F and it ends in O, as you said. Linda, you uh, you wrote the, you were the editor and the writer of the uh, of the of the money uh, column in uh, in the Toronto Sun for many years. Mm-hmm. As you look at this, uh, what's coming down from Ottawa on Tuesday? What are your worst expectations? Well, here we go. Okay, and I think let's go back to this the debt thing. Back in the 1990s, come on, we were screaming all over the place. Our debt to GDP, which is gross domestic product or economic growth, hit over 100%, Roy, back in 1996. And we yelled and screamed, and we know what happened. We brought that sucker down. We had the debt clock out there, tick, 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 tick. And we warned government that we could hit the debt wall. Well, guess what, Roy? We're getting up there. We're, what are we, 92.3 or 95% right now? My biggest fear is what Catherine says is real, which we do go into an economic tailspin. This debt is going to strangle us. So where is the reality check, guys? We need to have some fiscal management here, but at all levels of government, and particularly Ontario, all they do is waste our money. Yeah, Michelle, what's the likelihood that we'll see tax increases? Oh, I think they're uh, fairly good. One thing that all governments, and this is not a partisan issue, is great. You know, we're going into an election cycle, right? And so the goodies are going to start coming out, except they're going to make announcements and let the money lapse because they have to cover these black holes in the budget. So that's what I see. Okay, so moving on to our next subject, British Columbia and Alberta were launching insults at each other for a number of weeks. Alberta stopped the import of BC wine. Uh, The Premier of uh, British Columbia was going to fire back at some point, I thought, and now he said he's going to go to the court and let the court decide, and that seems to satisfy Rachel Notley, so she's allowing the wine back into the province. And uh, really, at this juncture, I suppose the prime minister should be stepping in because he's the one who says his government supports the uh, the uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline. So, and we'll be talking with um, with Vivian Krauss about all of this tomorrow. What, how do you interpret what's going on uh, between Alberta and BC, which affects, of course, everyone else in Canada, and remind some people of what happened in Montreal with the remember that pipeline that was banned by the. Former mayor of Montreal, Denny Coderre. And how about how about how about the Quebec City just dumped a whole whack of waste uh, right into the St. Lawrence River again? Millions of liters of poo. By the way, and we don't hear a peep from uh, the you know Catherine McKenna, the federal uh, environment minister, and anything about this. I mean, well, what a bunch of hypocrites! I'm sorry, but what a bunch of hypocrites! They tax the rest of us to the max, and and they're. Dumping gar- raw sewage into our water. Anyway, I'm sorry. You often feel it would be very hard to make this stuff up. But as to as to the BC and Alberta thing, why don't we have this is federal jurisdiction? If we had a federal, if we had a prime minister or even the federal energy minister or whatever with any guts, they would be stepping in here saying this is going forward. It has gone through the regulatory hoops. Time and time again, 
It has been approved time and time again. There is no excuse for this. And B.C., B.C. is doing illegal stuff from a constitutional standpoint. Somebody has to call them on it. And I don't know why Notley caved in to the, to the, the wine thing is not a big deal. It's more symbolic no. than anything. But why would she cave into that? Uh, when you throw something into the courts, what you're saying is we're going to procrastinate some more. That's what the courts are all about. All right, Michelle? No, I, I agree with Catherine. Okay. I think it's positively ridiculous that Alberta and B.C., on what is really a non-issue, uh, is retaliatory for something that is a big issue. And they've forgotten about the fact that there's a $16 billion pipeline that's yep. being uh, promoted by um, Calvin Helene and 30 um, chiefs of indigenous nations, and that $16 billion pipeline would be on native land, except for when it's under the, the water. So this is going to be a big deal. This, this Eagle Spirit pipeline is going to be a big deal that's going to catch a lot of people uh, trying, to f- trying, to, trying to come up with, with reasonable responses where they're they just should really say, "Let's look. Let's just say, let's build the dang things, and let's export what we have, and let's get the money into this country, and let's help ourselves." That's right, Roy. That's so right. And I got to say, I've been listening, and a lot of your listeners were calling in. And where is Justin Trudeau in all of this? In India. Well, anyway, going back to the Saint Lawrence, something stinks <laughs> to high heaven. This is jobs. Those are our resources. Canada is a resource-rich country. Come on, guys. Let's help our economy, not kill it. I told you before, you, these these th- three beauties are tough. Well, there was a very interesting Angus Reid survey this week, yeah. which showed that the biggest opponents of the Trans Mountain Pipeline are in Quebec. How do you like them apples? <laughs> the people oh, that get yeah, billions and billions of transfer payments from the energy industries. Once again, what a bunch of hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Well, as yeah. they said at the, at the St. Lawrence River, that's a bunch of poo-poo. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca. Linda Leatherdale, at Linda Leatherdale, and independent business journalist and vice president of Cambria Canada, and Michelle Simpson, at Michelle Simpson on Twitter, former liberal member of parliament. The B.C. budget was brought down, and uh, the speculation tax was a significant part of that, and it begins this year. The British Columbia government's going to add a half a percent speculation tax on homes that are owned by people who don't pay taxes in British Columbia, and that tax goes up to 2% next year in 19, and it'll stay at that rate going ahead. It's expected to bring $87 million into the provincial treasury this year. I like that. Do you guys agree? Hello? 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 I don't think that's going to make a dent. No. I really don't. I don't don't either. And uh, I I don't have a problem with it, but, you know, a lot of other things got taxed or taxes increased in that budget. One of them was a a new health tax uh, that was imposed. And I know that the, uh, and on the business sector, and I know this, even, even though they tried to pass it off as, oh, it's only big businesses. No, it's not. It's hitting a lot of small and medium-sized businesses as well. And what, what bothers me about something, when they call it a health tax, there's absolutely zero uh, belief that money's going to go into health spending. Absolutely zero. It's going into the big pot where government spends it wherever yeah. the heck they want. So stop calling it a health tax okay. and call it a tax hike. Okay. And, uh, Michelle, you're thinking on this? Oh, no, I agree with Catherine. The minute they call it, unless they have it audited and can show us where it went into the health care system, mm-hmm. I figure the money is all getting put into operations, and it's left to the government to do, you know, to balance the budget, to do whatever. And I have zero faith that they'll do the right thing. I like the idea of taxing people who don't live here and don't pay taxes here, whether it's $87 million or $8 billion 
the principle of the thing appeals to me. They're also raising the foreign home owners, uh, home buyers tax from 15 to 20%. Yeah. I like that as well. Yeah. It's just, it's the philosophy of it appeals to me, but put some really big canines behind it. I don't mean the whole dog, just teeth. I don't disagree with you there, Roy, uh, but, but the thing is, it's not a significant enough increase to, to really, uh, if, if they really want to discourage that, yeah. which, which clearly they don't. I don't think they want to discourage it. They just want to suck a little more money out of it. So, uh, by the way, they're also claiming the budget's balanced when it's, it's just like Ontario. They're hiding a whole bunch of debt in their B.C. hydro utilities, and Christy Clark started this, so I'm not going to blame the current government exclusively, but they're continuing that trend. So the budget is not balanced. That's baloney. And I don't like the luxury, yeah. luxury tax on cars. Anything that's worth more than $150,000, that takes my whole garage out of play. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's classic NDP socialist. Yes, it is, uh, isn't know, it? Theory, yes, though, right? it is. Evil, evil rich yes, people. Yes, it is. <laughs> Okay, what else do we have? Anything left? Oh, no-cost post-secondary education is being pushed and pushed and pushed by... Who's pushing it? More free stuff from government. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah. Who's pushing it? Is it Ontario pushing it, or is it it BC? I can't remember. I think it's Ontario. Ontario. Okay. Yeah. The the province that has the second highest non-sovereign debt in the world is pushing for free post-secondary education. But that's Kathleen Wynne going after the younger voter. No. One more. Yeah, time. There, there's an election. Yeah, it must yeah. be a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. All right. And Catherine's prediction was that we wouldn't get through all these issues. We've done it, and we have 20 seconds left. National Energy Board. Oh, we haven't talked about oh, that. Okay, go, 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 go. Well, the, the, the feds are dismantling the NEB, which actually has a stellar reputation internationally and has for decades. And... In my biased, you know, perverse political view, it's because they want to get rid of people on it that were conservative appointees. But the real bottom line, getting away from the partisan stuff, they're throwing yet more uncertainty into our whole energy investment area where we have already lost billions and billions. As Frank McKenna, a former liberal premier, as you may recall, said just this past week. Yes. Okay. You used up all the time. But perfectly. Nicely done. <laughs> but we got Nicely done. Catherine Swift, Linda Levadil, Michelle Simpson, they're the beauties on the beast. That's the segment. And we'll talk to you next Saturday. Toodaloo. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.